Man, we're going to jump right in today. John chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, I got you, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. In verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Are you thankful this morning that we serve the God of whoever, whoever will call on his name, he says, that person shall receive eternal life. Amen? Amen? Well, good morning. My name is Andrew Storms. I am so privileged to be up here speaking with you on this uh, tiring Sunday morning. If you yawn, I won't be offended. If I yawn, please don't be offended as well. It's been a, a good, good weekend. Thank you for all you guys over here that are first-time visitors. We saw a lot of hands raised. That's awesome. If you've been here a while and you're asking who the heck is this guy up here, I've asked that question myself from time to time. So <laughs> the role that I play here at Antioch Church um, is in that of an elder. I get to meet with Tyler and Chris, the other two elders at church, and it's just been a blessing to be on that uh, portion of the church. I am not on staff. I'm not one of the pastors. It's not my full-time role, but I'm so blessed just to be a part of this body at Antioch Community Church, and when I speak, I, I try not to, to say too much about myself. It's not a false humility. I really don't want the focus to be on me today or anything that I am saying, and I, a friend of mine passed along a story to me that I thought was so fitting, and I just wanted to share it with you. It says that there was a group of American Christians in the 19th century. They planned to visit London for a week. Their friends, excited for the opportunity, encouraged them to go hear two of London's famous preachers and bring back a report. On Sunday morning after their arrival, the Americans attended Joseph Parker's church. They discovered that his reputation for eloquent oratory was well-deserved. One exclaimed after the service, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever there was. The group wanted to return in the evening to hear Parker again, but they remembered that their friends would ask them about another preacher named Charles Spurgeon. So on Sunday evening, they attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon was preaching. The group was not prepared for what they heard, and as they departed, one of them again spoke up. I do declare, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior that ever there was. May our focus this morning not be on what's said, but maybe on the person of Jesus. It's always healthy to go back and revisit foundational truths. But what I love about our gospel, what I love about Christianity, that our foundation 
is not a structure, it is a person. It is the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So may all of the glory be to him this morning, amen? With Easter just six weeks away, I get curious again every year. I want to look back at the story of Jesus about his betrayal, about the death, his burial, and his resurrection. So these last few weeks, I know it's still down the road, but I just get excited about it, and I want to read everything I can. I've been going through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the Gospels, and looking at the different accounts. And every time I do, I I feel like I learn something new, and he begins to open my mind to see the depth of who he is. I think sometimes in Christianity, we we get to the cross, and we think that that's a moment, and we're supposed to move on. Now, I'm thankful for the resurrection. I am, because that's what brings us to life. But I don't ever want to get past the cross. I want to go deeper into it. There's some deep things inside that he wants to show us and that he wants to reveal to us. I'm reminded as I read through the Gospels of how Jesus had his disciples and they all leave him, they all desert him. And this this council, the Sanhedrin, this religious group, they are so upset, they are so offended by this man. But to their credit, that was partially what they were called to do was there were some false messiahs at the time that were proclaiming to be him. And so they see this Jesus character come on the scene and they're questioning him. And so we know the story, hopefully most of us, that they grab him there in the Garden of Gethsemane and they bring him before the council. And they say, this guy is claiming to be the son of God. Is it true, Jesus, that you are the son of God? And he says, it is as you say. And they rip their robes. They say, blasphemy. This guy is not. He deserves to die. And they send him to the Roman ruler of the time, Pontius Pilate. He's the one that can actually give him the death penalty. And so we know the story. He goes before Pilate, and he doesn't really say much. He said, what are the the charges? Here's what they're bringing against you. And Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. And he just confounds Pilate. So Pilate tries to bring him out in front of the people, and he says, "This, this man's innocent. And they said, no, crucify him. He said, crucify him? He hasn't even done anything. He said, but I know there's, oh, it's, it's the time of Passover. I can release, you know, somebody to you. They said, no, 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 we don't want that, Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Like, that guy, that crazy guy leading the revolt, you want him? So yeah, well, what do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. And they shout, and we see, and he has him flogged. He literally strips him naked, takes him out in front of the people, and they whip him. We know the story that he is unloaded on with his whip 39 times. That's what the Roman history tells us. And we know the story that as he's bruised, he's not saying anything. He's just walking up Calvary's road. He's got the cross on his back. And he goes and he ultimately pays the penalty of death, not for himself, but for me and for you. And as I think about that story and as we get from the cross and we see the empty tomb and the resurrection, we can't help but just be excited about the life, about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. As we look at a story today, I want to take a, a slightly different angle. We're going to look at a specific character that is involved heavily in the decision-making of putting Jesus to death. He is involved with witnessing the events that are unfolded that day, and I believe that we watch this man's life, that God will begin to open up some things inside of our own lives, and we can see how we personally should handle the body of Christ. If you have your Bible this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse number 57. As we pick up the story here, what has already occurred along the story we just briefly mentioned is that Jesus has already been sentenced to death. He has already gone 
to the cross. We know that the Bible tells us that from noon to 3 p.m. it is dark. Jesus has struggled on the cross. He has dialogued with the Father. He has cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ultimately we know he cries out, it is finished, and he gives his spirit, and he yields it to the Father, and now death has seemingly won. And this is where our story picks up. It says, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. If all we look at is Matthew's account, we see this character, Joseph of Arimathea, and all we know is that he is a rich man who for some strange reason wants the body of Jesus. And if we keep reading, we find the resurrection. But what's interesting about Scripture is if we look at the different accounts in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we will find different details woven inside to get the grand picture. It's the beauty of the, of the Bible itself. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers, all had the exact same story, we know that from literary criticism, they would say it's fake, it's a farce. Like they all got together and said, hey, let's all say this. But John sees it one way, and Matthew sees it another, and there's Mark, and there's Luke. So all we know right now from Matthew's account, he's a rich man that for some reason he wants to help out, and he wants to take the body of Jesus. Somehow he has access to Pilate. We have to question that. How was he able just to walk in to the Roman ruler and ask for something? Look what it says in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Same story, different account. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. Wait a minute. A member of the council? You're talking about the same council that Jesus was brought before and they said, this man deserves death. This guy, Joseph, this rich man, he's in that council? That changes the story for me a little bit. Now I've got to wonder, why would he want Jesus' body? What's the significance? Because the guys in one of the accounts, it says that they were all in agreement that this Jesus character should be put to death. He's claiming to be the son of God. We don't think he is. He deserves death. We all agree. Luke sees it differently. He said that he is a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. So we find this silent character that's sitting in the background when Jesus is literally being sentenced to death and he just backs up and he doesn't say a word. How many of us have followed Jesus from a distance and when things go crazy, we just back up? And we have to ask ourselves, how have we spoken up on his behalf? Because here's this man that apparently Joseph is following. He thinks maybe this could be the Messiah, but he utters not a word. He just stays in the back. Good, upright man, absolutely. Is he following Jesus? It says that he does, but he has yet to come to the defense of Jesus. It says that he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So now we're learning a little bit more. John chapter 19, verse 38, later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was the disciple of Jesus. Ah, here it is. 
but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Wow, peer pressure. This guy wants no part of proclaiming, I actually believe in this guy because he's scared of what his peers might think or what they might do. I've been there before, and I would guarantee you that the large majority of you have done the same in your life, and it's not a good place to be when we're so worried about what is my coworker going to think if I say, can I simply pray for you? What is that person behind me at the grocery store going to think if I say I have a word that God wants to share with you today? Can I speak to you? And we step back because sometimes we're fearful. But now that makes me question, hold on, if he's scared, then why in the world would he want to go get the body of Jesus? It just doesn't make sense in my mind. The last part, the last account, Mark chapter 15, verse number 43, Joseph of Arimathea, prominent member of the council. He's not even just on the council, guys. He is a prominent member. This guy's got some stroke. He can make some things happen. He's one of the bigwigs, but he's scared. He doesn't want them to find out what he truly believes. It says he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, but look at this. He went boldly, boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Why would he want the body of Jesus? He's going to blow his cover. These guys are trying to put this man to death. They've sentenced him to that. Pilate is in agreement. He lets him go. They crucify him, and this guy comes boldly to Pilate and says, I want his body. Why would he put himself at risk? Why would he expose his true beliefs? So we find in this story that he is secretly following Jesus, but now on the other side of the cross, he wants the body. What has happened from just the night before when he helped sentence him to death? What has occurred in that time period that now, after the cross, he actually wants everybody to know that he wants the body of Jesus Christ. And that's the question. I feel that if we can answer, if we can find out what happened to Joseph of Arimathea in that time period, it will unlock some things, not only in the story, but in our lives. This is not for the sake of revelation. We're getting somewhere with this today, amen? I have to think that Joseph, as part of this council, you had different groups. You had Pharisees and Sadducees. These guys, 100%, it is not a stretch. It's not a guess. They knew the Old Testament. That was their job. They knew the law. They knew the words that had been spoken. They knew about Abraham. They knew about Moses. They knew about King David. They had read the prophets Isaiah. They had read Jeremiah. These guys were extremely well-versed in the Old Testament scripture. So Joseph, we know from these accounts, he is part of that council. If he is a prominent member, he has to know it very well, has to know the Old Testament. So I wonder, Joseph, it doesn't say this, and it's not going outside of Scripture. I feel peaceful in saying this, but I believe with all my heart that he is there in that moment when they have decided to put Jesus to death. So as he's, as he's watching this unfold and he's sitting there in the background, I wonder if some Scripture starts to come to his mind and as he 
starting to see something maybe that he had never seen before in this guy that he thought was simply a man. Because honestly, nobody really knew if he was the son of God unless the father had revealed it to them. We don't know if that's true or if he's just like, I understand, I like this guy's teaching, but I don't really know if he actually is the Messiah. And so he's watching this. He sees this council begin to mock Jesus and they're saying all these negative things about him. And the next guy spits in Jesus' face as Joseph watching this. As they take their fists and they smack Jesus in the face over and over. One of the accounts is they take their staffs, they just start beating him over the head. Is Joseph watching this there at the council that evening? I have to guess that he likely was. And as they move him to Pilate, he's watching Jesus really closely. What is he doing? It doesn't say that the council left and just said, hey, Pilate, he's all yours. These guys are like waiting on pins and needles. While Jesus is alone privately with Pilate, they're outside waiting. They're stirring up the crowd. Hey, when this guy comes out, we got to crucify him. We've got we to go for it. Crowds, they're on board with what he's doing. Is Joseph watching this as part of that movement? Is he stepping? And as they come out and they bring Jesus out, does he notice that his face is starting to get almost unrecognizable from all the blows he's received already? Now he's starting to swell. Is he looking at Jesus and trying to figure out What's going on is Pilate brings him back out and he hears the crowd and he sees Jesus not even say a word. He's not even defending himself. Is his mind going back to some scriptures? Is he starting to see what happens? And as they take Jesus brutally and they whip him and they open him up and he starts to see all these wounds occur on his body, is he thinking back? I've read about this somewhere. I think this might be bigger than I thought it was just one night ago. And when we see that, does that change us? If we see Jesus for who he is, if we see the sacrifice that he makes, does it change our perspective? Does it take us from being secretive to us wanting to boldly handle the body of Jesus Christ? As we look at Isaiah chapter 53 and we read through this together, Beginning in verse number two, we've got to keep in mind that Joseph of Arimathea, he knew this scripture. It says he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. They're speaking of Jesus here. They're prophesying. Isaiah's prophesying of the Messiah, verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Is Joseph seeing that this man that they placed before him is being totally rejected by everybody that is standing there and watching the events unfold? Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Oh my gosh. I remember last night, I just, I just kind of let him go. I didn't hold him in high enough esteem. He's, he's despised. I hid my face from him. I didn't really want him to see me back here because if he looked straight in my eyes, he would know I was consenting to his death. And that's not really what I, I, I don't know. Is this, is this him? Like, is, that, is, this, is this the guy that I've been reading about since the time I was a little kid, or is this just another fake? Verse 4, surely he took up our pain 
and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. As Joseph of Arimathea is watching this, and they take Jesus up Calvary's hill, and he has to be following. It doesn't say that somebody told him Jesus died, and then he wanted the body. It said he went boldly. He had to have been watching what was going on. I have not near enough vocabulary to describe the crucifixion, nor would I try. I would fall so short. But we know what happens. We know that as they stretch Jesus out, he already looks like a complete mess. As they take his hands and they begin to pierce, and they begin to drive the stake into this hand, and they fold him out, and they open him up, and they drive the stake into the next hand. As they fold his feet over, and they're driving stakes, and they're talking there, and they're mocking him, are these verses going through his head? Is it bringing about the realization of who is standing before him? Verse number five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He's seeing this literally with his own eyes unfold right in front of him says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. Joseph's like, that was me. I, I did it my own way. I, I didn't really want to say anything. I'm just kind of running life the way I want to run it. says he was a rich man. He had great riches. It says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his soul. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. I kept wondering, why would this man not say anything with all these accusations, he just shut his mouth and never said it. Oh my gosh, is this the Jesus? Is this the Messiah that I've been waiting for? What a fool, am I starting to see this? But make sure it all has to line up because if he's off on one part, it's not him. So Joseph carefully, I have to think, is watching this. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as the sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. What would that have looked like as Jesus walked up the road to Calvary? Is Joseph seeing this? And is he realizing who it is that stands before him? Verse number eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? I know, Joseph, I was thinking the same thing. When they brought him out to the crowd, where was Lazarus? The guy he raised the debt from death, why, why was he not? Why didn't he say anything? What about Jairus? He raised his daughter. What about the guy that was blind and now he can? Nobody said anything. Where are all these people that this great healer had performed all these amazing What about that crazy guy, Peter? Where's he? Nobody said anything. Nobody in this whole generation opened up their mouth and said, this is a good man. We shouldn't do this to him. Wow, but scripture had to be fulfilled. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Joseph, he's dead, but wait a minute. He hasn't gone, no, nobody's buried him yet. He finds himself somewhere in the middle of this scripture. And he sees that Jesus, this man that has been held in low esteem, it says that he should be buried. He's been assigned a grave with the wicked and with the what? 
the rich in his death. Wow. You mean I have the chance as a rich man to fulfill the scripture about this man who I now understand just might be the actual son of the living God. Though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. I've never heard this man utter a negative word. I have to ask, is he seeing all of this firsthand? It's pretty simple to guess. I think he is. And Isaiah Chapter 52, verse 14, it says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. I don't think we grasp that. It says that Jesus on the cross is literally unrecognizable. He has been marred more than any human being in the history of the world. I love the Passion of the Christ, that movie, but they get so far away from what it actually looked like because it says he's not even human anymore. The form isn't even there. Did Joseph see all this? This is what's bringing about the change from I, I want to secretly serve him to, oh, my goodness, Pilate, I've got to have the body of this man because now I know who he is. He knew these scriptures. Joseph knew Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Was he close enough to the cross to hear all of this? And then I wonder, did he, did he go down and think about Psalm 22, verse 16? It says, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my... It is him. They're piercing his hands and his feet. I, I think it's him. All of my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. I just watched that. These guys like took his robes and they started giving them out. And then the undergarments were like, let's, let's roll some dice. Let's see who's going to come up with this. Who can make a quick buck off this story? God forbid we ever cheapen the gospel and try to make a quick buck off of it. It is real. He has given his life, and now we know that it's just too much. I believe Joseph watched all of this unfold, and he has gone from this place of secrecy, and he has witnessed this physical massacre, but he understood it wasn't about the physicality of it. He understood that he was bruised, that he was torn apart for his transgressions, for everything this rich man had ever done. He saw it with clarity, I believe. And he said, forget, forget all of that money I had. I know, you know, I, I'm a rich man, and, and I understand that I, I have access to things, and we, we know from history that the rich people got the nice tombs. The wicked, the poor, they were just wherever they could bury him, they buried him. But this guy, for some reason, we know from Matthew's account, he had purchased this large rock, and it said he had cut out his own new tomb. This rich man, why would a rich man be wanting to cut out his own tomb? Maybe to preserve his legacy. Maybe that's what he's been working so hard for, was to get his name known that when he died, everybody would remember who Joseph of Arimathea was, this prominent council member. But what we find is you begin to cut out your own tomb, you're working really hard, all you're actually doing is creating more emptiness for yourself. 
And I think what Joseph realized was forget about my emptiness. I have found the author of life. And if we will take the pain, if we'll take who he is, the sacrifice, and put him inside of our emptiness, that actual miracles can begin to occur. Is everybody with me this morning? We see that he has a part to play, that he takes the death that was this tomb that was designed for him, for Joseph. And he said, I want to replace my death with the death of Jesus because he is the one that alone has life. So he goes to Pilate and he says, I want the body of Christ. Can you imagine in that moment what it looked like to physically take this broken, destroyed body of Jesus down off of the cross. Again, my vocabulary would fail me. I'm not trying to make it sound too graphic, but think about it. Think about it. He had to walk up. Somebody had to remove the spikes. What did that look like? What did it smell like? What did it feel like? Go there for a minute. Put yourself in his shoes. Was the corpse, were the eyes open, were they closed? We don't know. I can promise you this, as he begins to pull them down off the cross, Joseph himself was likely covered in blood. Everything about this man, as he pulled him down, did he get hit with a thorn on the side of his head? I don't know. As he grabbed him and gently caressed his back, were there pieces of flesh that were just falling off of him and onto Joseph? We don't know. Scripture doesn't record it, but it does say that he gets him down off of the cross. How did he handle the body? I believe that he didn't care about that anymore. He, didn't, he doesn't care if he's getting a mess. He's like, I've got to give this guy my best. He just gave his life for me. I've got to do something. I've got to make it right. I've got to put him in the tomb. You know, one thing I think is so fascinating that as he handles this body and he realizes who he has just seen die, the first thing he does is he goes and he grabs a friend. How true about the gospel that as God begins to change our lives that we can't help but tell other people, look who I found. Come help me. Come see who the Savior is. You say, Andrew, I thought, I thought he was alone. He was in Matthew's account. We find him in Mark and Luke in the same way. But look what it says in John chapter 19, verse 39. It says he was accompanied by Nicodemus. Same guy we read about in John 3 that's questioning, who are you? He too was a Pharisee, a member of the council. He had come to Jesus at night. He was scared, just like Joseph. And he wanted to ask, how do you receive eternal life? Jesus said, you can only come into my kingdom unless you're born again. You mean I got to go inside my mother's womb? No, 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 no. You have to receive the life. That's the one that Jesus said, for God so loved the world. He was speaking to Nicodemus. And now Joseph goes and grabs him. He says, hey, I know you secretly followed him, and I did too. We don't know if they knew about each other. But he goes and he grabs Nicodemus, who had earlier visited Jesus at night. It says, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them, these two secret disciples have now chosen to blow their whole cover. 
We don't find, up, find out anything else about them in Scripture. Nicodemus is mentioned again, but Joseph, we never know what happens to him. But he has taken his buddy Nicodemus, and they have properly wrapped the body of Jesus with the spices, the strips of linens, as was according to the Jewish customs. Well, that sounds like a great story, nice thought. So where do we land with all of this? I can't physically go back to Calvary and take Jesus off the, uh, off the cross. Only one guy got to do that, and that was Joseph. So how does this apply to us? What, what can I do with the body of Christ? I want to handle the body of Christ correctly. What does that look like for me here in 2019? I think Jesus speaks into this. The day before his crucifixion, the night before, right before he was betrayed, we know that he took what we call the Last Supper with his disciples. Look what it says in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Verse 27, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They didn't even know what he was talking about. Earlier in John 6, he's speaking with a large group of people. It says in verse 53, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. It sounds so disgusting almost. But that's the same reaction that these guys had. It talks about right after that. It said that this statement was so hard for them. It said that many left Jesus because they couldn't wrap their mind. They're like, I like this guy when he heals people and his story, but now he's talking about eating flesh and drinking blood? Has this guy lost his mind? It's a difficult concept. What do you mean, how do I eat his flesh? And how do I drink his blood? Did he just come up with this? Like, how am I supposed to follow that? But what I find is interesting is that the Old Testament even approaches this gently. We know that the children of Israel, that God has called them out of bondage. They're in Egypt, and he gives 10 plagues, and we know the final plague is that he's going to send an angel at night and it's going to come and get the firstborn of all the families and all the cattle unless, if you know your Bible well, unless you apply the blood over the doorpost. That's what keeps the death out. In Exodus 12, 7, it says, and they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the doorframe of the houses where they eat the lambs. We know that John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb. But I have to ask, 
How many times have we applied the blood over our lives, but we've never actually eaten of the lamb? What do you mean by that, Andrew? I mean that when something goes wrong, we want to pray and say, I plead the blood of Jesus over that. Do you know that the blood of Jesus is what keeps death out of your house? But if you want life, he said it, not me. He said, you've got to eat of my flesh and you have to drink of my blood if you want life. Have we stopped short in our walk with him? We just said, I just received salvation. I am not minimizing the blood. Nothing else can set you free. Nothing else can buy your salvation but the blood of Jesus. But you can stop there. That's your choice. But they knew in Scripture, they said, it's not just about applying the blood. It's about eating of the lamb. As I asked the Lord about that, what do you mean by that? He said they ate the whole thing. How many times have we prayed to the Lord, Lord, I want ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, and he gives us his ears. Oh, but I don't want to say that. I can't tell that person that. That means you just ate the ears of the lamb, but you chose not to eat his mouth. Or you say, hey, God, I, I want to know your thoughts, and he, we partake of that portion of Jesus but then our eyes just wander and we, we see everything and we look at things we shouldn't look at and we get caught by distractions. It's, be, it's as though we have applied the blood to our lives, but we have not fully partaken of the lamb himself. And it sounds difficult. How do I even do that? Do you realize that he never asked us to understand the sacrifice? He just asked us to partake of it. And that's all I can really share this morning is that he has asked us to partake of all of him, not just the parts we like, not just the, I like his teaching, but that, you know, speaking in tongue stuff is weird, or not just, you know, I want to see like Jesus sees, but you mean I actually have to help my neighbor? I've got to do, I've got to be the hands and feet? I have to do the whole thing, but I can't just make it, I can't manufacture it, I have to partake of his entire body. As we begin to close, I want you just to see what happens. There's a few different reactions you can take when you're presented with the body of Christ. Two of them are in total error, and I believe only the third one is what brings us to wholeness inside of who Jesus is. Quickly, in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 24, we're going back to Pilate. I want you to notice how Pilate handles the body of Christ. It says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. He said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He said, it's your responsibility. Oh, that sounds nice, Pilate, but guess what? It's not that simple. You can't just say, oh, I'm innocent of that man's blood, and that be the case. How many of you know that Pilate could have set Jesus free? So the washing of the hands and just stepping back and saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. I've, I've heard about Jesus. I've heard about Christianity, but that's not me. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. That's not me. I am innocent of this man's blood. I have lived my life good. I've lived it well. And it's not really me that wanted to put him to death. I'm sorry. I mean, it's, I'm just, my hands are tied. I can't really do anything. I'm innocent. Wrong response. I heard somebody say that, Pilate washed his hands of the only thing that could have saved him. 
Did he ever receive the life of Jesus? Because like it or not, the blood was on his hands. What's interesting is that the people, this crowd that is stirred up, they actually answer, they say, his blood is on us and on our children. They had no idea that what they just said was true. The problem is that they didn't understand is that the blood is on all of us. The question is, is it because we have put him to death or because we have openly received the gift of salvation? Let that be clear today that the blood is on all of us. Oh, we can look at Pilate and say, well, you know, you're the one that, that put Jesus to death. And, you know, I know you didn't really care about his body because you just freely gave it away to this Joseph of Arimathea. But guess what? You and I put him to death too. And the question remains, what are you going to do with his body? Pilate saw no value in it. The crowd, nobody, they just leave it there. They're like, I'll leave him on the cross. You and I can't do that. The one thing you cannot do is you cannot leave Jesus on the cross. It stands before you today. What are you going to do with the body of Christ? So we see, we learn from Joseph of Arimathea. We learn that he was secretly following him, but as he realizes the revelation of who Jesus is, that now he wants to come and he wants to receive everything from the body of Christ. Amen. Worship team, if you'll go ahead and come back up, if you'll go ahead and stand to your feet this morning. You know, Joseph of Arimathea, I find it so interesting, just his response wanting this. And looking back at something that, that Jesus had said, I was so, so fascinated by this. I think it's extremely relevant. Do you remember that Jesus' first miracle was? He turned water into wine. Y'all remember that? It's so interesting that when he's there at the wedding, his mother is there. It says that his disciples are there with him. His mother, Mary, looks at him and says, hey, they're out of wine. You know what his response to her was? Not in a demeaning way, but he said, woman. He said, why are you bothering me? My hour has not yet come. I always thought that was so strange because any other time he's mentioning his hour and his time, he's referring to his death. And so this woman has asked him with his disciples, hey, they're out of wine. I wonder, was Jesus fast-forwarding in his mind, a little foreshadowing? Was he thinking about, I know there's going to be a time when I'm going to drink of this wine with my disciples, but woman, it's not right now. I wonder if the blood has always been on his mind and we've just missed it. Like, that's why he came. It's always been there. That's why he came. He was the sacrifice. But he said, hey, guys, okay, I'll, I'll fill these jars with wine, but later on down the road, I'm going to drink this with you. And if we look at the Lord's Supper, he said, I'm actually not going to do this again until I'm with you in paradise. But he said, I've left you this gift of partaking of the blood, of eating of my body. And I know some of you might be thinking, I know about the cross, but why did we not even touch the resurrection? Because anybody could die, but not everybody can come back to life. I'm with you on that until we look deeper into Scripture and we find the importance and the reason why we have to ingest and take in the death of who Jesus is. In 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4, verse 10, it says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. To receive the resurrection, you have to eat of the death. You have to drink of the blood. But I want you to understand, not from a doctrinal position or theology, but in order to receive and intake the blood and to eat of the flesh, you have to have received the gift of salvation. I want to make that clear this morning, that if you have never said, I've, I, I've never received the free gift of eternal life, you have to do nothing to earn it. Zero, zilch. You just have to say, I receive the blood of Jesus into my life. Let that be known that Jesus came, as he said in John 3, 16, he came because he loved you. He died for you. He paid the price for you. I would love to lead you in a prayer of salvation, but you know what? It's like Kent talks about, Father God is strong enough. He's real enough. Jesus is here. He can have that dialogue. All you have to do is open up your mouth. It says that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. I want you to know that that is free. You don't even have to wait on me. You can talk while I'm talking right now. You can just say, God, I need you for the first time. Come into my life. Save me. Receive. I receive the blood of who you are. I know that a large majority of you in here have done that. So we have to eat of the lamb. Did you notice in the Old Testament as they put the blood over the doorposts, we know that after that they left on a journey. Well, how are you going to have any nourishment if you don't eat of the lamb? You've got to eat something. You've got to put something inside of you. That's why he says, give us this day our what? Daily bread. He wants us to eat of him every single day. Not just on Sundays. Not somebody spoon-feeding you the gospel. He said, you come and get it for yourself. What a beautiful opportunity we have this morning, and I say this so gently. If you have not yet received the gift of salvation, I'm going to ask that you refrain simply to really to cover yourself. Paul approaches taking communion in the New Testament. He said, some of you have taken of the body of Christ wrongly, and that's why you're sick. And that's why you're weak. These guys just thought it was some crazy meal. Well, whatever, I'll, I'll eat some bread and drink some juice and be done with it. No, 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 no. This is the real deal, folks. He has given us the beauty of communion. Are you saying that I need to wake up every day and take communion? No, I'm saying you need to wake up every day and commune with him. If that means taking communion, go for it. But guys, we've got to see that he has given his life not so we can just apply blood, but so we can partake of everything that he has to offer. I apologize. If you want to take communion, you have to bend down and reach under your chair. If you'll do that for the moment, we're actually going to do this together. Again, if you don't feel comfortable, there's no pressure. You can go ahead and take off the top. We're going to do this together. Lord Jesus, we just say today 
that we come back to the foundational truth of who you are. Man, God, would you please get it into our spirits, the sacrifice that you made. May we not wait till Easter every year to think about your death, about your burial and your resurrection. But God, you have given us clear mandate. You've given us the opportunity to partake of the body of Christ. Lord, as we, in just a moment, as we take of this, this bread, we say that we receive the death of Jesus into our bodies. We're signifying that we need you, that we want you this morning more than we ever have before. We don't even understand it. I don't even know what we're doing, but you said to do it because we need you. So God, we do this in remembrance of the gift that you gave. We eat of the bread this morning. And Jesus, just as Joseph of Arimathea got his blood all over him, your blood on him, Lord, we don't have to leave it surface value. We don't have to just apply the blood on our lives. And Lord, we're not minimizing that. Please, God, hear my words in purity. But man, we don't even have to put it on our lives. We get to drink it. It gets to get inside of us. Lord, we receive the blood this morning, the blood of the pure and spotless lamb that has paid the price for our lives. We rightfully judge our body and we say that without you, we are sinful people and with you, we are the righteousness of God. We receive the blood of Jesus into our lives again. We do this to remember the sacrifice. We drink of your blood. Just quickly, if I can have some of our prayer team come up. I know I'm probably way over, but I just feel like we're supposed to do this. One of our life group leaders or prayer team, if you'll make your way to the front. I just want to open this up. Do you have to have somebody pray for you with you? No, but I just want it to be, to be known that there's a, a place for repentance that may need to happen in your lives that you've only eaten part of the body. I know you just ingested it all, but perhaps you just want to pray with someone and say, man, that's me. I, I've only eaten of his mouth, but I need, I need his eyes. I need all of him. If you have any prayer need, any sort of healing, anything, the blood of Jesus is real. It's here. It's not me. It's not them. It's him. So if there's anything you want prayer for this morning, we just want to invite you and just say that you have that time, that you're welcome to do that. So Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We bless you and we honor you in Jesus' name.